Good morning, Liberty Lake Church. You want to all stand together with us? And we will start some singing. Take a seat at dawn for announcements. Good morning. How is everybody? We got one wonderful. Again, I say, do we need to take a break and go get a cup of coffee? Uh, start again. First of all, I thought, uh, my name is Don. I volunteer here at uh, Liberty Lake Church, and we do all kinds of stuff, and if you're interested, anyone that's hanging around that would like something to do, uh, Bill is in charge of the deacons, so he runs the list, raise your hand, Bill, and then I have to tell you, Bill and I call ourselves skilled monkeys, Alan is the brains. He's kind of a retired general contractor, and I've learned more in two years than I did in the first 68 years of my life. <laughs> he is smart. So just a plug for helping out if you're interested. Love to have you. Youth camp is coming soon. Parents, this is an opportunity to get some rest, send your kids to camp for a week. And the other side of that is uh, 
as uh, some of us older folks, grandparents, et cetera, et cetera, uh, if you feel led to help send a youngster to youth camp, please feel free to do so. Uh, you can contact Julie. There's a couple different options, but uh, it's pretty neat stuff to be part of a youngster's life and introduce them to Jesus Christ. Just a side note real quick. I remember the first two weeks my parents sent me to a youth camp in Montana somewhere. Yes, it was still a territory back then. Yes, thank you, Gary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I came home after two weeks, and my mother saw me, and she put my suitcase down, opened it up, and she looked at me horrified. She said, you never changed your clothes. <laughs> you must have sons. <laughs> I said, yeah, I had fun. So she made me strip down in the garage, and she threw my clothes away in front of me. <laughs> and yeah, anyway, a little transparency there, folks. Family prayer night, Tuesday, July 27th at 5.30, family prayer night. And it's just neat to get together. I know it's tough in the summer, but it's so neat to uh, unify our hearts. And I got to tell you, you know, as a church family, I mean, here we are as a church family. We're all different. I mean, in most churches nowadays, there's five generations with four basic personalities. That's a lot of different aspects of people. But you get together with people, other people, and you pray together. All of a sudden, you begin to realize part of the unity that God asks us to do and be because only a real bozo lies to I learned that years back when Cindy and I started praying together. I mean, there was times when you just went, you know how men and women communicate. It's really a good time. BBS is coming up, Vacation Bible School. That's the coolest stuff ever. It is really cool. Okay. <laughs> The key ingredient this year, it's in the evening, and it's family. <coughs> so there's a couple opportunities here for us to show up with, uh, for youngsters that have working parental units, and kids that are just, for whatever reason, grow up in a home where perhaps VBS and that type of stuff is more of a babysitting service, and so the parents send them. Kids love to be listened to, and they, they just love to be loved. And it's such an easy, easy job. And a lot of us grandpa guys, um, we're on the same wavelength as a fifth-grade boy. And, it <laughs> and the wives are all saying yes. Uh, but it, it really is. I, I'm teasing, but it is so cool, you guys, to be able to participate in children's lives, uh, young girls, that are looking for aunties and grandmas and, and et cetera, et cetera, just somebody to listen to them. Uh, life is tough in America today, and it's really tough on kids. It really is. I have 16 grandkids, and I'll tell you what, we bond tightly because we have a mutual enemy, their parents and my kids. So I, I hang with those kids 
and I love them to pieces, but the stuff they talk about is horrifying to me. It really is. And what they're aware of and what they know shouldn't be for children, young people. Okay. I have a word of encouragement for you that I would like to talk about. This is Thessalonians. Always makes you wonder if Paul had a speech impediment. Thessalonians. Now, friends, read those text next words carefully. Slow down. Don't go jumping to conclusions regarding the day when our master Jesus Christ will come back and we assemble before him. Don't let anyone shake you up or get you excited over some breathless report or rumored letter that the day of the master's arrival has come and gone. Don't fall for lines like that. Before that day comes, a couple of things have to happen. First, the apostasy. Second, the debut of the Antichrist. A real dog of Satan. He'll defy and then take over a so-called God or altar, having cleared away the opposition. He'll then set himself up in God's temple as God Almighty. Don't you remember me going over this in detail when I was with you? Are your memories that short? And the reason why I read this to you, it's really important deep down inside to remember our ministry team here. It isn't just Shane and Sally. It's Gary and Tammy. It's Lee and Lisa. It's Craig and Maggie. And, and the, the people that can teach us the word of God, the true word of God. And I'll tell you, I, I've been in meetings with these men, and I promise you, they fear God more than they fear us. And they don't always like to open up the word of God and say, this is what it says. In other words, don't shoot the messenger. But we're very, very, I tell you, God has given us a gift in the men that stand true to the word of God. And the cool thing is you get around them, they live the word of God. When you're in their homes and you're involved in projects, they live what they teach up here. And that is amazing. So keep them in your prayers. And with that, we have a new guy up there on the worship team this morning. Yeah. Let us stand with us.
Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe you're all to us. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe you're all. 
that would be the heart of your children, that would be the heart of the worship of our lives, not just in our music, Lord, but that in everything we do, you are all to us, your glory, Lord, that it would be our passion, your righteousness, that it would be what, what lights a flame in our very lives to pursue and to follow you. Lord, let us be the church as you have designed us to be. Let us exalt and worship you in life, in word, 
and in, in deed and all the things that we do and say, God, may you be glorified. I pray this morning that you would uh, speak through Gary and uh, you would use this time, Lord, to speak to each and every heart that's here. Let us hear from you and let us learn through your word today and be encouraged to be challenged. And Father, we just pray that you would do all this for your glory and not our own in your name. Amen. Kids, you're dismissed. How about now? Hey, there we go. So uh, my wife this morning gave me a new job description. I don't know if you noticed, but we, we rode in on the Harley this morning. And we're headed for Lolo to, to the Square Dance Center there right after we're done. So we've got the... Uh, motorcycle out there I'm preaching today and we have square dance slips attached to the top of the bike and so she said that uh, my new job description should be a motorcycle riding square dance calling itinerant preacher <laughs> okay okay I always like to start any sermon I do with the words from Psalm 1914 King David Prayed, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I liked uh, Don's closing remarks, too, about, uh, you know, don't shoot the messenger. We're going to be in Jeremiah some more today, and uh, Jeremiah, that poor guy, you know, right after the section that we're going to look at today, he goes into a prayer for his own safety. Um, they did not like what he was saying. Um, we tend today not to like what he's saying because it applies to us today. And uh, just as kind of a, a reminder, you know, J Jeremiah followed Isaiah in chronology. Um, Isaiah's message to the, uh, to the people of Israel was, there's still time, guys. Turn away from your sin and repent or else these bad things are going to happen. Jeremiah is saying, well, you had your chance, guys. Here it comes. And, you know, that's what he's telling the people, and they're not real happy to hear it. So today we're in, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 17. We're going to start with that chapter, or we're going to start that chapter. I'm going to let Shane finish it. But <laughs> last week Shane finished up with chapter 16, and we heard God speaking through Jeremiah uh, he's telling the nation of Judah that he would send them into exile, but he would bring them back to their homeland at a future date. In chapter 16, verse 13, he said, Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. Hurl you. I mean, it, that's not... That's a, uh, a strong, violent act 
I mean, you throw things. You, The only person I've ever heard called a hurler is a guy that can throw a fastball like 98 miles an hour. Hurling is a is a powerful word there. He's not just picking them up and moving them. He's hurling them out of their homelands. He goes on to tell them, before, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave their fathers. So it's pretty obvious in chapter 16 that punishment has been decreed and that the people of the nation of Judah will be taken into captivity. So let's go on. Now chapter 17 continues that message and gives more details about the sins of the people against God. So let's look at, um, we're going to be looking at 17 verses 1 through 13 today. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their asherim, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. The first four verses of chapter 17 that we just looked at is kind of a reminder or a repeating of what God said in chapter 16. And if you go back to 16 and look at it in verse 10, it says this, when you tell this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods and have served and worshipped them and, for, and have forsaken me and have not kept my law. And because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, 
here is this is again therefore i will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known and there you shall serve other gods day and night for i will show you no favor he's trying to make sure they get it it's hard to miss he he repeats it not because because he's getting dementia and doesn't remember what he said but because he's speaking to a people that won't listen so he keeps repeating himself god's already told the people through his words to jeremiah what their sins are so now he tells them how deeply their sin is ingrained in them he says the sin of judah is written with a pen of iron with a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country. When the people of that day wanted to write something permanently, they didn't have a permanent black marker, a sharpie, or and the stuff that we have. They didn't use they they didn't use scrolls for permanent because papyrus which they made the old paper what was close to paper it rots it's uh, not a long-lived thing it would rot and disappear over time um, we have today just a few fragments of old papyrus scra um, scrolls that um, kind of what we would call paper today the dead sea scrolls are an example but even those they they were just sort of accidentally or or through providence got stored in just the perfect place in jars it was just the right humidity and temperature and there's still just fragments of them left when they opened those jars a lot of what was inside was dust but those are some of the few ancient writings so the idea is permanency um, if it was intended to last forever for many generations it was engraved in stone remember on the the mount uh, when when god gave the people the commandments he put them on tablets of stone um, it was just a way to make something permanent and god is using the imagery here of the hardest tools to be had an iron pen with a diamond tip judah's sin is deeply engraved on their hearts which had become so hardened that they were like stone so it's been inscribed permanently in a way that can't be erased, and uh, there's no getting rid of it. No Formula 49, no Mr. Clean, it's, it's there. And its permanence affects many generations. That's what God's referring to when he says their children remembered their altars. Pagan altars, also deeply etched with sin. And the high places where they conducted their own idolatrous worship. We were kind of talking about this last week. Um, group of us that were studying this scripture there's two things i think going on here with the altar well if you can hear it i'll just let it flop <laughs> uh, so their own altar in the temple was not being used properly so there there's god's calling them to task for the way they worship him but then also they've got these pagan altars up on in the high country where they're actually giving their true worship their heart and uh, their children are seeing that and carrying it forward, and it's continuing generation after generation. And um, it's insidious. Uh, it creeps 
even you know, t- today, think about it. it. It creeps into our hearts, and as we do something, do things that we know are sinful, maybe at first we think, but after I do it a few times, it might feel kind of good. And nothing bad happened, right? So I just kind of keep on doing that, and pretty soon it gets easier and easier. And you turn farther and farther away from what you're supposed to be doing. He tells them again that they will be displaced from the land that he gave them, which is the promised land. It's the, the land that he brought the, Israel, the, the Israelites out of Egypt 40 years in the desert to try to teach them a few things, finally let them cross the Jordan and take this land. And now he's saying, no, nope, you're not going to get to stay. He says, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. The heritage given to the people that God's saying you're going to lose is that land, the promised land. And um, the enemies, he's going to have Babylonians coming down. Um, I believe it was under King Nebuchadnezzar. And they're going to come down and take Jerusalem, destroy it, and take the people back with them. So God's reminding them of this before he begins the next part of this message because it has to do with a covenant that was given through Moses back before the people entered into that promised land. When God gave them that land, Moses told them, he said they had some of the tribes on a mountain over here and they had some of the tribes on a mountain over here. And they gave blessings and curses, remember? Alan talked about this a few weeks back, about the covenant. He did a great job. I'm not going to read the covenant stuff today because it would take another couple sermons. And that's but the idea was, the bottom line is, they were commanded by God to worship and obey him and only him. If they did that, keeping the covenant, there would be blessings from God. If they did not, breaking the covenant, there would be curses and removal from the land that God had given them. So this is nothing new, right? They were told this. It's kind of like it's like how like your kids, you know, you tell them, if you do this, bad things are going to happen. If this, then that. But for some reason, we have this disconnect. Ah, it, it won't happen. As a pharmacist, I don't know how many times I try to tell patients, that, you know, you keep smoking cigarettes or you keep doing whatever. These bad things are known to happen. And for some reason, we, especially when we're young, we think we're bulletproof. We can do whatever we want. The consequences, eh, it, it won't affect me. Well, it will. And uh, it, it's hard to deal with. So in that next section of the the verses we're looking at in verses 5 through 8 God reminds the people of the conditions of that covenant first he brings up curses and I think he probably does that first because that's where they're at you know you guys are 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 already there so he says turning away from him brought his curse and in verse 5 thus says the Lord cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord and I think that there's, I, I don't want to get too confused here either or, or make people confused. 
I think that the curse is really, there's some intentionality in the phrasing when your heart turns away from the Lord. That's not saying, oh, I messed up. And then you're coming back and you're, you're praying for forgiveness or you're trying to get right before God. This turning away is, is just that. It's, no, we've got better altars up there on the hill. We don't need this, this stuff down here. That's, that's a heart attitude that God's really looking at here. And when that happens, he said, that man is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Not much grows in salt. In contrast, in verses 7 and 8, um, God says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now you notice God doesn't say that everything will be hunky-dory for that tree. It says um, there will be heat, there will be years of drought, but because it's planted by water and has good roots, it can get through those periods because it can reach down to that water that God is providing to get him through that, um, that period. Um, doesn't cease to bear fruit. Leaves stay green. Um, might not be comfortable. Might be um, like we're going to be on that Harley at 95 degrees heading for Lolo this afternoon. But If we place our trust in man or ourselves, God is, instead of God, um, then we're compared to being a shrub in the desert. Shrubs don't typically have much of a root system, right? They're, they're pretty shallow. Their roots are, are easily pulled up, and they're way out of place in the desert where there's not much water to begin with. The emphasis, like I said, is on a heart turned away from God, um, intentional disobedience or disbelief. So um, I ran across as I was, was looking at things. Everybody, Anybody seen the the movie about Dunkirk, remember that? Based on a, a true story, Battle of Dunkirk. Um, and I, I learned something about it that I hadn't realized before. Let me give you a little history background here. It was May, May of 1940. So the U.S. didn't enter the war officially until December of 1941 is when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. So we're almost a year and a half before that. Hitler um, actually invaded Poland in 1939, and England was fighting against Hitler for a long time before we got in the act. And also, they went from Poland, they invaded France, took France, and then they started using France as a base to fly missions over the English Channel and attack England. So by the, uh, and, and England sent an expeditionary force, about 200,000 men, over to France to try to stop Hitler. On May 10th, and this is again in 1940, Hitler had launched his blitzkrieg against the Low Countries and France, and by the end of the second week in May, the French defenses had been broken. German panzer forces, tanks, led by Rommel and his 7th Panzer Division, burst through and with lightning speed began a rapid advance. 
Very soon, Rommel's armored pincer movement was threatening the British army with encirclement and our forces, uh, this is being written by a um, man that was there, our forces were being obliged to withdraw. Back at home, Mr. Churchill feared that it would be his hard lot to announce the greatest military disaster in our long history. Whilst on 27th of May, the German high command went so far as to boast that the British army is encircled and our troops are proceeding to its annihilation. With the entire front collapsing rapidly, the decision was reached to evacuate our forces from the continent. But the only port that they had to evacuate was Dunkirk, and that was already being seriously threatened by the Germans. Taking stock of the predicament, Churchill said in uh, a book titled The Second World War, he said, I thought, and some good judges agreed with me, that perhaps 20 or 30,000 men might be reembarked. The whole root and core and brain of the British army seemed about to perish upon the field or to be led into ignominious and starving captivity. All, therefore, seemed to be about, about to be lost. Here's where I thought it really got interesting. But Britain had a godly sovereign. Seeing this situation developing, His Majesty, King George VI, requested that Sunday, 26 May, should be observed as a national day of prayer. In a stirring broadcast, he called the people of Britain and of the empire to commit their cause to God. Together with members of the cabinet, the king attended Westminster Abbey, while millions of his subjects in all parts of the Commonwealth and empire flocked to the churches to join in prayer. Do we have that? Did that picture come out at all? There we go. That's what it looked like. People were lined up. They couldn't even get into Westminster Abbey. And that was only one church. This is the one that the king attended, so it was the, the really popular one for people to try. But all across the country, they had this kind of response. The people turned to God. Britain was, was uh, given inspiring leadership in those days, and her people responded immediately. The whole nation was on, on, at prayer on that Sunday. The scene outside Westminster Abbey was remarkable. Photographs show long queues of people who could not even get in. The following morning, the Daily Sketch newspaper exclaimed, nothing like it has ever happened before. In its hour of deep distress, a heart cry from both monarch and people alike was going up to God in prayer. And that cry did not go answered. For very soon, at least three miracles were seen to happen. The first miracle was that for some reason, never yet fully explained by history, by historians, Hitler overruled his generals and halted the advance of his armored columns at the very point when they could have proceeded to the British Army's annihilation. They were now only 10 miles away from Dunkirk. Later, Mr. Churchill asserted in his memoirs that this was because Hitler undoubtedly believed that his air superiority would be sufficient to prevent a large-scale evacuation by sea. Churchill was known not to be a very faith-generated guy, so he's, he's looking for other stuff. But the fact that Hitler might have believed that his heir would take care of it, that's significant in terms of the second miracle. A storm of unprecedented fury broke over Flanders on Tuesday, the 28th of May of 1940, grounding the German Luftwaffe and letting the British Army formations move up 
um, 8 to 12 miles from Dunkirk to move up on foot to the coast in advance of the storm. The fewer had not obviously, or had obviously not taken the weather into his reckoning, nor the one who controls the weather. And the third miracle was despite the storm in Flanders, a great calm such as rarely ever been experienced settled over the English Channel. And during the days which followed, its waters became as still as a mill pond. And it was this quite extraordinary calm that invaded, that allowed a vast armada of little ships, big ships, warships, fishing boats, everybody that owned a motor-driven boat and some rowboats from England went to Dunkirk to load guys up and bring them home. I saw a thing somewhere else that talked about the English fathers rescuing the children from France and bringing them home. So uh, that's, that's enough of that. He goes on with some things, but it was, it was remarkable, and it was undoubtedly God's hand in that. The people turned to God, and he listened. And then after that, they had a, a day of thanksgiving, and Psalm 124 was being sung in Westminster Abbey. And I just, I thought the words of that, Psalm 124, it says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was, re- was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has give, not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this would be the, the people, you know, England's kind of like the United States. There, there was a day when both countries followed God. We, we turned to God. Um, but trusting in God takes faith. And we can't trust in someone we don't believe in, right? Burke Parsons, um, I'm not familiar with him, but I, that's, he wrote uh, this article, and part of that said, to exercise trust implies that we are trusting in someone greater than ourselves. In no wonder, it is no wonder the world is so impatient. Those who do not know God can only trust in themselves, for there is no one greater in whom they can place their trust. Their confidence is self-confidence, their esteem is self-esteem, and their reliance is self-reliance. In the world's economy, everything is a commodity, and to the world, the self is number one consumer. Therefore, when the self wants something, and to the world, the self is number one, the self should get it. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent convinced Eve that she should not trust God, but that she should place her trust in herself, so that she could see as God sees Forsaking her trust in God, she was self-reliant to the point of death. And since that time, Satan has done all he can to sell the lie of instant gratification to the people of God. However, we will not give in to the enemy's deceitful promises. We will not sell our souls in order to be instantly gratified. We are not self-reliant. We are reliant upon God and and God alone. In God we trust, and for that reason, we are patient. And that's where his writing ends. I just I thought he he hit on something pretty good there. Our self reliance is um, at at the the root of our problems today. We're still turning away from God and trusting in man instead of. There's a lot of stories of faith in the Bible. Um, 
the Old Testament, we have Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Lot, Gideon, just to name a few. In the New Testament, the most of the apostles ended up dying as martyrs for their faith. Um, John is the only one I know of that uh, that they say lived, died a natural death, and he was in exile on the island of Patmos. I mean, he and had been he had survived burning in oil, and I mean, the apostles didn't have a great time. Their faith cost them dearly. Hebrews eleven in the New Testament, chapter uh, verses one through six says, "Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it." The people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he could not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, this is the, the big point here, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, um, hopefully I haven't told you this story before. If not, it's because I'm getting to be a senile old guy. Uh, back in 2006, I got a chance to take a trip to uh, to Russia on a mission trip with a group of guys from our church in, in Ketchikan, Alaska. But through just scheduling and problems, I was still on active duty as a public health service officer. We had all this stuff scheduled, and um, the the little Russian airline that was supposed to fly us across the from, it's, it's only just, I mean, it's right there, right? You just go... But the little um, Alaska or the the little Russian airline decided they didn't have enough people signed up, and they canceled the flight about six weeks before we were leaving. So now we had to scramble, and we ended up having to to charter or or schedule flights. Um, we used Alaska Airlines to go from Ketchikan to Seattle, from Seattle to Los Angeles. From Los Angeles, we got on Aeroflot and went over the polar cap route to Moscow, which is on the wrong side of Russia, if you look at a map. And then from Moscow, it was a 10-hour flight. Imagine that. You're still in the same country. 10-hour flight from Moscow to Petropavlovsk, Russia, which is only three, out, three time zones from Ketchikan. So in order to go three time zones this way, we went 21 the other way. Nuts. But then... When we rescheduled, all of a sudden, I couldn't get the days off that we were leaving. So I had to, to schedule my departure two days later on a Saturday. Um, I'm giving you all these details because I just want you to, to know what I was up against here. So um, the flight, the connection in, in Los Angeles that flew from there to Moscow only occurred every other day in the week. So you couldn't fly every day out of Ketchikan, right? So I show up Saturday. I'm getting ready to leave. And one of the hazards, we just knew about it in southeast Alaska. We always tried to take it into account is, you know, in Ketchikan, there was never a plane on the ground waiting to go. It was always somebody passing through. So what I was really waiting for was a flight coming out of Juneau and then going on to Seattle. 
that flight got grounded in Seattle because something happened to it mechanically. I probably didn't want to get on it anyway. But it was, we waited, we waited, and waited, and finally got to the point when there's no way I'm making it to uh, make my connecting flight in Seattle to go to L.A. to make that flight to Moscow. It just wasn't going to happen. So the, the people there in the airport got on. They did all their things on the computer, said, okay, we got you good to go. You're scheduled to go to Moscow the day after tomorrow because that flight's only every other day, right? That was Memorial Day weekend. So Monday, I made, got going again. And, uh, of course, I had lost track. Hard to communicate with your, uh, your fellows that are already over there. And they had scheduled a group to meet them in Moscow and take care of them and uh, get them on the way to Petropavlov. You had to overnight in Moscow, too, before that flight to Petropavlov. So I get to uh, Los Angeles. And, um, and you know, through all this, I got to admit, I'm, I'm taking care of all the logistics. I'm getting things ready. I'm trying to get things taken care of at work. I'm trying to get everything packed. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to deal with everything. Not once did I lay this in front of God. Not once. It was just, just me trying to get all this stuff done. And everything's going good, right? So I get to, to uh, Los Angeles, traveling alone. Got this big duffel bag. It's got some hardware in it for a swing set we're supposed to be building in Petropavlovsk because that didn't come in until they left. And So I get up to the, uh, the ticket counter or the check-in place, whatever, for Aeroflot, which is the Russian airline that's going to go to Moscow. And basically they said, yet, no, I missed my flight. It was two days ago you were supposed to be on that plane. I said, well, they, they took care of that. No, no, if you want to go to Moscow, we need another $700 now. I don't have $700 on me. And we had you know, kind of depleted our resources to make this trip. That just wasn't going to happen. And I just, something inside me just, I folded. I just gave it up. And I, I that is when it finally hit me that I hadn't put it in front of God. And I went over to a quiet area in the airport, and I sat down, and I started praying. And I just, I just said, Lord, if you want me to go, I need some help. That I, I'm, I'm beyond everything I can do. I can't get there from here. And uh, so I, I prayed for a while, and then I got up and I walked over to the Alaska Airlines desk to try to get a ticket back home, back get back to Ketchikan. And I can still see this, this lady's face. She was a, a, a fairly young, attractive lady, but she had attitude. And uh, she was in that computer looking at it. She goes, She'd been in there about five minutes, and I thought she was trying to find me a way back to Ketchikan, and all of a sudden she looks up and she says, oh, wait a minute. This is our fault. You're going to Moscow. I said, okay. She said, follow me, and took off towards Aeroflot. I just, yes, ma'am. She was only about this big. But I'm behind her, and I followed, and I, she apparently spoke Russian and you know, dealt with these guys enough or found somebody. Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of out of earshot. And she, they went back and forth, and it was not a particularly happy conversation for the first few minutes, and then somebody got convinced, and anyway, she brings me up and, and says, you're going. 
Well, by now, the, the plane's getting ready to leave. So, I mean, it was literally at that point, I threw my bags to them, which they had already given back to me, and they closed the door behind me as I got into the airplane. So, cool. So, I flew to Moscow. Um, wasn't a particularly exciting flight, other than every landing on Aeroflot was exciting. And every flight that I was on on that trip, when that plane lands, it, it just feels like it's a controlled fall. And when, when you finally start going straight down the, rut, the runway and everybody knows it's under control, the whole plane erupts in applause. Every flight. Yeah. <laughs> but they still get on the planes. Anyway, um, so now I'm in Moscow. Well, Moscow Airport is, is this big place. There's an international ter uh, terminal and a domestic terminal. And there's about 20 miles between them around this perimeter of this big airport. And you're not actually in Moscow. You're about 60 kilometers outside of it. There's nothing out there except the airport. And I get there, and there's nobody there. There was supposed to be somebody meeting me, pick me up, take care of me for the night, get me nobody. Pretty soon I end up meeting an American-speaking cab driver, got me to the other side. Um, cost me more than I wanted to pay, but he got me there. Got, he helped me get into a hotel. I got, went down to try to find something to eat. There was a young lady in this uh, more of a bar than a restaurant, but they had some food. I didn't, hadn't met anybody yet in Russia. I didn't have any uh, money. And she couldn't take American bills. But this, this lady, just out of the blue, says, well, let me have your American 20. And she put it in her personal purse and took out her personal Russian money and exchanged it for me so that I could buy dinner. I found out later she gave me exactly the exchange rate. She didn't keep a dime for herself. She just traded the money for me. That kind of stuff happened the rest of that trip, and I got to Petropavlovsk where I needed to be on my own. But it was very definitely God intervening because I put my trust in him instead of me, and then things started to happen. It was really, um, it was obvious when you could see it happening in front of you. So, you know, think back now to, to Judah. Why would anybody choose not to trust in God? You'd think it'd be pretty obvious, right? Well, the answer is in verses 9 through 11. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And it's interesting here, um, when you, it, if you pay attention as you're reading through the Bible, pay attention to quotation marks. Okay, so up to now, the verses about the covenant language and everything, those were all God speaking, speaking to Jeremiah. But there's a closed quotation right before here. So now in verse 9, this is Jeremiah speaking back to God. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then in verse 10, quotation marks again, God is answering back to Jeremiah and says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. We, we humans living in a fallen world, back then and right now, today, we have deceitful, sick hearts. When sin entered the scene in the Garden of Eden, it changed things forever here on earth and in, in our, our hearts. We lost our innate desire to please God. We became rebellious 
with no inborn desire to please God. Adam and Eve gave up a relationship with God the Father for the false promise of something better. They trusted some, themselves instead of God, and we, as their, their descendants, have been paying for it ever since. And none of us are, all in, are immune. We are affected by what I would call sick heart syndrome. There is, actually is a medical condition. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, the venom of asps is under their lips, lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Think that applies today? And Paul was writing about this back in the days of, uh, of his, of, well, when he was alive, so it was before 100 A.D. R.C. Sproul said, uh, oh, sorry about that. Even though people break their word, the Lord always keeps his. Ultimately, the whole of Christian life is based upon our confidence in this truth. The question is not really whether we will believe in God, but whether we will believe God and what he has promised. There's a difference between believing in God and believing God and trusting him. All Christians must be people who trust the Lord and stake all that they have on his word. Despite all our troubles, our trust must always be in God. We do not, apart from Christ, we can't love God. We don't, we don't love the truth. We rationalize the irrational, defend the indefensible. We harbor malice, lust, covetousness, all manner of secret sins. And this is what Scripture tells us from beginning to end. Matthew Henry's commentary uh, said there is wickedness in our hearts which we ourselves are not aware of and do not suspect to be there. We're sick and don't know it. You don't seek treatment when you don't know you're sick. So what's the answer to sick, sick heart syndrome? Grace. We are powerless to heal ourselves. We need Jesus God, or, uh, Jeremiah said the heart is desperately sick, and we desperately need Jesus. In verse 12, go, Jeremiah goes on to say, A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Jeremiah refers to the Lord as the fountain of living water. And in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, going back a bit, God refers to himself that way. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, he's not talking about water storage tanks here, guys. He's talking, this is spiritual living water versus me as a human being trying to, to figure all this out myself. 
but when I try to, to do things spiritually, I end up with a broken cistern that can't hold anything. It just drains away, and I'm stuck with mud. In John chapter 4, Jesus says that he gives us living water. And um, the, the, woman, the woman at the well, 4, 7 through 15, um, I'm not going to read all of it, but you, you know the story. Jesus was traveling through Samaria where good Jews didn't really go because those Samaritans were bad people. And the disciples went in to get food, and Jesus is sitting at the well, and this lady comes out, and uh, he asked her for a drink. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, have you nothing to draw water with? And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So what is living water? Well, scripturally, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit we receive when we are saved, when we receive the by grace, the salvation of Jesus Christ. That living water washes and cleans our heart. It's the cure for sick heart syndrome. It can wash that deeply inscribed sin off of our hearts. That's what we're born again in the Spirit. And that, that you know, think about the visit um, from Nicodemus and when Jesus met him at night and told him that, uh, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear it sound, but you do not hear or don't not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And he goes on to, to scold Nicodemus a little bit. He says, you're supposed to be the teacher of the people. You don't know this stuff? We are powerless to change our hearts on our own. We can't do it. That's why we're cursed, as God told the people of Judah, when we rely on man, on ourselves. Because mankind is just weak flesh. We need the gift of grace that God bestows on us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, then we are reborn. And we get to the living water that he offers, never to thirst again. I've been comforted ever since I became a believer in, in really reading this scripture. I've been comforted by the words of Paul in the seventh chapter of Romans. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, 
I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now why is this comforting? To me, if the Apostle Paul could struggle, it just makes me feel better when I have to struggle sometimes. It makes me feel like I'm in good company. He goes on to say, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And how can I possibly say it any better than that? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for your gift of grace and the healing of hearts for those who believe and trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, as Savior. Through Jesus' death, we experience the gift of life. Forgive us, Lord, for our doubts and for our tendency for self-reliance and help us to trust in you for everything, knowing you will keep us safe from evil and bring us home in your good time. Amen. You want to stand with us? You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are
the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Have a good week. See you next time.